everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside Revealing with some tennis part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Have with me my co-host and Hall of Famer. He was on site every day these last two weeks in New York. Steve Flink. Steve, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple things with both winners. Unbelievable two weeks. Very happy um, with the outcome of both. Before I Before I throw a few stat numbers out there, let me hear uh, your your brief initial thoughts. Well, I love the contrast between Coco Coco Golf winning her first major, nineteen years old, this great run with Gilbert and this glowing future, and then Novak Djokovic at thirty six, playing in his thirty sixth Grand Slam final and winning his twenty fourth title, and with more to come. So I, I think that I, I love the fact that we had this great. Wiley, magnificent veteran, and this young up-and-coming player who's going to win so much more, who, by the way, seem to like each other very much. Gilbert has conveyed that. And Coco, when she would finish her matches, would, would sometimes jokingly say, and ladies and gentlemen, the next match, the best player in the world, Novak Djokovic, or things along those lines. And I think that's a nice connection, too. But I thought, you know, we had two very worthy champions. That's my initial thought. A few numbers to throw out there, and I'll start with Coco. You know, there were a lot of there were a lot of questions asked after her first round exit at Wimbledon. She goes 18 and one, Steve. She wins Washington, DC. She loses in the quarters a close match to Jesse Pagula, wins Cincinnati, and wins the US Open. 18 and one after a first round loss at Wimbledon. Well, in listen, it's it's astounding. And it gets back to the discussions we had, David, earlier in the summer when I said to you, and I think you were in full accord, it's no accident that this happened uh, uh, under the watchful eye of Brad Gilbert. It's just not. He had that same kind of success with Andy Roddick, who won five out of seven tournaments once they started together, including the U.S. Open in 2003 and number one in the world that year. And here it is happening again. It just cannot be coincidence. He also had a great start with Andre Agassi back in 94. So, he seems to have an immediate effect on, on his on his players in terms of how they carry themselves on the court, what the expectations are, what helping them to believe in themselves. So I really believe that. I, I'm convinced that's a, that's a significant factor. I thought it was very nice that Coco credited her father so much, and I understand that, and, and he has done so much to shape her. But in this recent period, I have no doubt that it's the Gilbert influence that uh, has had so much to do with Coco's success. And Novak, you know, you mentioned the 36th Grand Slam final. Um, I mean, there's numbers that we can throw out that we would take the length of this podcast. We're not going to do that. But you mentioned 36. He's played in 72 slams, Steve. Half of the slams he's played, people, he's gotten to the final. It's unbelievable. He's on 24 of the 36. But, I mean, half of the slams he's played in, 72 slams, he's made the finals in 36. This is the third time in his career He's reached the final in all slams of the same season. It's 2015, 2021, and 2023. And I'll even say this year, the timing's different, obviously, but he was closer to getting the calendar slam this year than he was in 2021 because he only missed it by one set. He missed he missed a fifth set at Wimbledon by Carlos Alcaraz. If he wins that set, he gets it. Obviously, 2021, the timing was different because it all led up to the U.S. Sure. Open, and he was undefeated to the last final. But again, this year, he only, this whole year, he missed one set by getting it, and that was the fifth set in the Wimbledon final. 
Yeah, no, we'll never know because obviously the quest was over then once he lost at Wimbledon, unlike two years ago when he was able to come here and get within one match of the Grand Slam. But I, I look at it more like this, David. In my mind, I remember how disappointed he was and he was a little cheery in the, in the presentation ceremony at Wimbledon because he, was, he, he knew he, he said, I came, I was so close. And he yet, you know, gave full marks to Carlos and said several times since he was outplayed. But in an odd way, I think that that's what won him the U.S. Open. He comes in here without going for the Grand Slam this year, which adds so much pressure and just isolated it. And it won Cincinnati over Carlos to avenge the Wimbledon loss and came here determined to get his third uh, major of the season. And I think it was easier to accomplish it without having to worry about, uh, you know, finishing off a Grand Slam. And it is now the, the fourth year that he's won three majors in a year. No, ma no man has ever done that either. It's just... Said so many spectacular seasons, but to do it now, given that he missed two majors last year, and one and both of them related to being unvaccinated, Australia and then the U.S. Open. So he, for him, for him last last year was a lean year. One major at Wimbledon in 2022. To come back this year, have that great second half of last year post U.S. Open and finish the year strong that set the stage for three majors this year in addition to the Wimbledon final is just astounding. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to minimize like the buildup of going in that he had in 2021 in the last slam. I mean, that's tremendous pressure. I was just kind of counting sets type of thing. No, no, I understand. This year he was I understand. I'm just saying that I think it took a little, it took some pressure off and he did oh, talk. Absolutely. He did absolutely. talk about how he, he told the people around him. He mentioned in the press conference yesterday, he didn't want any talk about history leading up to this final because he thought that he'd gotten consumed by it when he played Medvedev two years ago. And that, it, as he said, you know, he, he was overwhelmed and he underperformed. That was a great way to put it. Sometimes he sounds like a writer to me. Sometimes I wonder what I'm doing when I hear him talk because he expresses it so well. But my point is, that's exactly what happened. We all could see it. We all talked about it after he lost to Medvedev two years. It was so clear how tight he was. Completely different this time around. Correct. All right, let's start on the on the women's side. And I, I know you were close. You were really close. Um, you said a dream final even before even before the draws were out. Maybe we can get a Jesse Pagula Coco Golf final. Well, you got one half of it. Um Jesse, who played a resurgent Madison Keys, and we're gonna talk about Madison uh in in a in a minute here, but um Jesse Pagula. It was a weird performance against Madison. And I get that when you play Madison, Steve, if she is on fire, she can take the racket out of your hand. I get that. And we're going to talk about that match that Madison had against Sabalenka. But um, I, I know this sounds kind of mean. I'm just seeing it from my own eyes. That match that Madison Keys played, Pagula, as a viewer, it almost seemed like a lifeless effort. Like felt she almost felt helpless out on the court. I, I kept waiting for some resistance from Jesse in that match and it, it never was there. And I, and it wasn't for lack of, I don't think fighting. I just think Maddie just took the racket out of her hand. Very fair point. And Maddie takes it out of your hand in two ways. Obviously she's got a pretty big serve, but it's to me, it's more so the firepower off the ground that makes her so hard to play. And, and obviously she was sort of, she was dictating the terms. I get all that. It's just that we've seen Pagula so many times face rough, rough opposition, lose a set, navigate her way back into a match and win in three. And, and this was just an obliteration. She broke back once in the second set, but she was really taken apart. And she didn't seem to have 
her usual spark. For whatever the reason, she was flat that day, in addition to Keys being just absolutely magnificent. So we, it was a little shocking. But once again, it seems like so far in her career where she's been stuck at the quarterfinal limit uh, and not even making the quarters here, that she hasn't been able to quite show her best at the majors yet. It'll happen. I'm convinced it'll happen because Pagula is is a is a thorough professional. One of these days, she's going to get the right draw and she's going to get the confidence, break the quarterfinal barrier, and and make a move toward a semi or a final. She's too good a player not to do that. And obviously, with Madison, it wasn't just the Pagula match. She then destroyed Madrusova, uh, the Wimbledon yeah. champ. Right then, she played yeah. the semi. She played the semi with Savalenka. Savalenka, by the way, the only active women woman to make the semis of all four slams. Last one to do that was Serena in 2016. And, you know, Madison and and you and I have talked about Madison on previous episodes and we get a little frustrated with her, right? Because we've seen the level that she can play at when she's playing well. And it's unbelievable. I mean, we all remember 2017, her run to the final against Sloan. Um, I mean, when Maddie is playing well, she is unbelievable. And I think she's probably the only one on tour who can match Sabalenka's power and I feel like she did that match and and it's interesting and I want to I want to get your thoughts on this because I felt it was really interesting the contrast in two of these matches Maddie plays Sabalenka goes up 6053 playing amazing and I'm thinking to myself okay Sabalenka we know how big of a hitter she is she always plays at that pace Maddie's matching her she's playing better it's 6053 and I'm saying to myself all right let's Maddie needs to win this match as soon as she can to get out of the get off the court because you just know over time there's going to be some errors that start creeping in in Maddie's game. Look, Sabalenka fought back, got to a second set tiebreaker. Sabalenka wins the second set tiebreaker. By all accounts, I thought Maddie was going to go away in the third set. Credit to her, she did not. She was up four two in the third. Um, but it's just to me was like, gosh, Maddie needs to hurry this up and, and get off the court with a win. How did you how did you see that match? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was important. I was I, too, was surprised by the third set, the way that she got the lead again. She got hurt at the end. There was something at the end of the second set, had a medical timeout or an injury timeout. That upper leg was taped, reminded me, actually, it was it was eerily reminiscent of 2017 when she got hurt in the semis and. Was, was kind of crippled in the final against Sloan. Sloan played great, but it was not, it, it, you could see that Keyes was hobbled in that final. And it crossed my mind as the third set was unfolding, what if she wins this match and that injury acts up and we, we have to see her not at full strength again in a final? What a shame that would be. But he, there's just a couple of things. She didn't play either tiebreaker very well. The, neither tiebreaker did she show her best stuff. And she had two cracks. The last one's a super tiebreaker. And that was too bad, given all that she'd done to reach both tiebreaks. Uh, you and know, Steve, and- before you before you get into the tiebreak, I, I do I, I missed this one point. It was six oh five three, and Sabalenka then wins twelve straight points, and I felt one hundred and twenty seconds, and then we get to yeah, that tiebreak. Yeah, break. yeah, but then Maddie still she still recovered enough to make the breaker, even despite that sequence of points and those love games. She she regrouped and did a good job, but then played a poor tiebreaker. And it was after that that she saw the trainer and got the taping. And I thought, oh boy, she's going to lose 6-2 in the third. But she was able to move well enough. I thought running for the wide forehand, she looked a little slower. But otherwise, she did a great job. And if she would have served a slightly better game at 4-2 and gotten to 5-2, I think it would have been enough of a cushion to get it done. But when she lost that game, it hurt. She still managed to hang in there and get to that breaker in the third as well. 
So it was a really great performance from her. And I have to say, it was one of the coolest responses I've ever seen from Sabalenka. She really didn't, she never looked frantic. She never looked uh, as, if she, if she, as if she was going to beat herself. She, she had a sense of calm that I don't see from her very often in those situations. So she, she had a lot to do with it. Frankly, if she could have stayed as composed in the final, it might have kept her in the match longer. But we'll get to that. We can get to that. I just think that she did a really nice job of battling back in both the second and third sets and believing in herself and, and not panicking. That was some serious power tennis between Maddie and Sabalenka. And again, I think Maddie's probably the only, you know, one of the only ones on tour that can match Sabalenka's power. The other semi. And by um, the way, just a quick thing, David, that was that was so late at night. The crowd, most of the crowd stayed. It was terrific. I remember driving home after 1 a.m. after that match and, and and the sense of exhilaration looking back on it. It was a really nice atmosphere, as was Coco's semi. But obviously the keys, Sabalenka, was the better of the two semis and hanging in the balance all the way. And a joy to watch it. Oh, yeah, right. And the, and the first match, the first semi that night earlier in the evening was Coco versus Mukova. Coco goes up, you know, six, four, five, three. The forehand's still looking a little shaky. She has a match point at 40, 30, gets broken, gets five, five. She holds, Coco holds for six, five. And then she had, I don't know, four or five match points. I have it written down. It's funny how my notes are, but they had that one extraordinary 40 shot rally that Coco wins. And then the next point was a match point. Which she which she won. The one the, the thing that I wanted to really emphasize was when Mukova was starting to come back. If you looked at Coco's demeanor, it never wavered, Steve. It never wavered. She never got negative. She stayed positive with it. And it wasn't the highest quality match up until those last few games. I know we we agree on that. But when it got tight at the end, you notice Coco with her forehand started to get more aggressive with it, which I felt was really really important yeah more aggressive but also i think uh, uh not overplaying it i mean if she had missed a lot earlier on as you already alluded to and i was a bit worried about it, it was much wilder than it had been the whole tournament spraying balls all over the place but that that did change at the end and what's remarkable is as you know they had that delay at the end of the first set you had a protest in the stands the match is delayed for 49 minutes tough on both players and and up until then, it hadn't been that great. Coco had led 5-1 in the first set and and, and let Mohova back to 5-4 and then finally close out the set. And then it hadn't been that great up to 5-3. From 5-3, the end of the match was just spectacular. That The, the stadium was erupting both players because Mohova played really well in that stretch as well. And so it ended on a very high note because the level went up so so substantially from where it had been for a set and a half. I agree. Um, and then we get our final, right? We get uh, Sabalenka versus Coco. And I, I put a preview video up, Steve, and every once in a while I, I, I get it right. And, and I was fortunate enough to get this analysis right. You know, we kind of said earlier about with Madison and Sabalenka, we said, Maddie, you got to, you know, 6053, it's a, it's a sprint now. You have to win and get off the court, right? The opposite is how I looked at the Sabalenka Coco matches. Yeah, they played five times. Coco had a three to two head to head lead. They most recently played at Indian Wells where Sabalenka pretty crushed Coco pretty good. Um, in this match to me, I thought Coco was going to have to extend the match do the opposite of how Maddie would have to succeed against Sabalenka. I knew the first set 
Sabalenka would just come out just bully ball, right? Hitting everything as hard as she could. It would take a little while for Coco to adjust to the pace, I thought. And then she just needed to chase down every ball and make Sabalenka hit ball after ball after ball until, as we all know with Sabalenka's game, how good she can get, errors will creep in. And we started to see that in the second and third set. I thought it played out exactly how I envisioned it. Um, And here you go, 19-year-old Coco Gauff, U.S. Open champion. How did you see the match? Steve? Yeah, I didn't think it was going to be as one-sided the, the third set or, or even that Coco would run away, pretty much run away with the second. It was interesting to me, and Gilbert referenced this on TV, and I totally agree with him. Big game was the first game of the second set. And Coco serves a couple of doubles. She's 15-40 down, gets out of that game. That was a big hold. Yes. And then she started to relax. And you mentioned the speed. I thought that was a huge factor. I, I think um, – tells me that she was tight in the first set. She didn't move nearly that well in the first set as she did in the second and third. There was no I problem. think, but a lot of part of that was, I think, getting adjusted to the pace, maybe, no? Maybe, but she could have made, but I think if she'd been moving better, she would have gotten to more balls and might have already started to coax some errors. We'll never know. But there was an enormous difference when she really started to get going and the crowd got behind her. And suddenly you felt there was no ball out of her reach. And Sabalenka... He couldn't quite handle that. And and let's face it, David, you know, no sharp criticism of Sabalenka. You've already said she's the only one to be in the semi or the women or semis of, or better in all the majors. But look what happened after Australia. You know, the collapse against Mohova in the, in the semis of the French the match that she should have won. Very close, very close to beating Jabor in the semis of Wimbledon loses that. And now this, this was not close after the first set, but still she's a set up one set away from a second major and wasn't able to get it. So she's still, you know, as consistent as she's been, I'm sure she's a bit disappointed that she didn't win at least one or two of those three matches. And maybe she could have come away with another major, but Coco was terrific. And again, you talked about the semi. She also didn't panic in the final either. There was a real sense of of being on a mission and calm. And, and then the crowd was just, it, it, it was phenomenal. I don't think I've ever heard noise in that stadium quite like it, except for a couple of Roger Federer matches, uh, because he was he was always so popular everywhere everywhere he went. The open crowds adored him. And, but Coco got in with the roof closed. The noise only was compounded. So I, that could not have done her any harm whatsoever. It clearly did not. And I also oh thought, no. And I I said to my I said to myself, Steve, like you know maybe anywhere else. But New York on a final, Sabalenka may win. But I just had a feeling like if it wasn't a sprint, if Sabalenka did not crush her in two sets in a row, if Coco could sink her teeth into it, get into the match, you knew that crowd was was going to be behind her from the first ball. And as you saw her start to rally, it would get behind her even more, which they did. No, they did. But also, you know, she she wins the second six three, goes up four eleven the third, and then lost two games. And you thought, uh oh, this. That well, that, that's an interesting point. The two games because she called for it. Sabalenka called for a trainer, and now we're thinking it was four zero, right? And we're and and we're like, okay, is this maybe gamesmanship? It wasn't really talked about that much. Is it gamesmanship, or did she really need the trainer? Because after that trainer, she won two games in a row. She did, but I Coco then dug in and got that that last break and won the last two games and. That that was important. I don't think she she certainly wanted to avoid having the gap closed to four three and no tension setting in. And again, I didn't sense that she was 
that worry. But she does have that tendency. We saw it earlier in the tournament, too. She has that tendency when she's up a couple of breaks. It also happened against Mahova in Cincinnati, where she can, I don't know if she gets tight or she gets a little, little complacent. It's hard to tell. But she definitely, you know, she can have a little trouble with the closing. But, boy, I mean, think about this tournament. Three comebacks from a set down, another three-set win over Wozniacki where she won the first set. So many great performances and so many three-set matches where she was pushed to the hill, but she came through every time. And so mature. We always talk about her maturity and what she speaks like um, during the trophy presentation into the press just so impressive. I mean, we feel like she's been on tour forever. Remember at 15, she makes the fourth round of Wimbledon. She's only 19. She's now U.S. Open champ. Uh, I mean, other than that, just the clap of the hands, right, for, for Coco Goff. And, and gosh, the confidence that she has. Again, we got we to gotta step back and remember, first round loss at Wimbledon, there were a lot of questions out there. And all she does is go 18 and one and now is a slam champion. Uh, it, it, listen, the timing was perfect. The Gilbert arrival was timing was perfect because she, she, there were the critics were out there in in force. I mean, so many, and it's partly what you just said. You get to the fourth round of Wimbledon at fifteen, and the expectations grow, and everybody's expecting you to do by sixteen to start be, being in the final. It, it doesn't work that way. She got to the finals of the French a year ago, beaten badly by Suyantec, and then things were not so great after that. So. It, it's understandable why she went through the growing pains, but I just don't think we can underestimate what Gilbert did philosophically for her. I don't think it's that he even changed her game. I don't even have time to really technically change her game, but he changed her outlook entirely. I think he he does. He Andy Roddick speaks to this too. Like he makes the complicated seem very simple. I think he gives their player a really clear plan going out there. They know what they need to do. He loves the scouting. And like you said, he wasn't changing anything. Technically, you don't have time during four tournaments in a row, whatever yeah, yeah. it is that she was playing. It would be interesting. To, it's interesting to see if during the off season later in the fall, if she does kind of tinker with that forehand a little bit, because they really, other than maybe playing the forehand a certain way, depending on where you were in the court, um, you know, Brad even said we're not tinkering technically really with that for him. Yeah, but I, you just, what you just said, I fully expect that there will be some tinkering in the fall. You know, yes, she'd like to finish the year as high as she can, stay in the top three, whatever it takes. But she's, she's, she's realized her mission by getting that first major. And yes, she'd like to do well in the WTA championships at the end of the year, but that's probably the only really big goal left for this season. Therefore, I would think there could be some weeks where they would do some minor tinkering to see if they might improve it a little more. But overall, she did a great job off the forehand during the Open and waited for her openings and 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 just had this fantastic tournament across the board. Amazing job, Coco Goff. Okay, let's flip it over to the men's side. Um, again, I know there was only one in the semi. There weren't any in the finals, but the Americans did really well this tournament. Steve, having three players in the quarterfinals, um, they, they did well. And... You know, the semis, we we can talk about. It was a straight set uh, win for Novak over Ben Shelton. Obviously, Ben beat Francis in the quarter before. Um, again, we talked about some of those Americans. They kept doing well enough. Unfortunately, they had to face each other. Um, you know, uh, Ben played Tommy Paul, right? Ben played Francis Tiafo. So um, just as an example, you know, the, the Novak wins in three sets. The third set got interesting, got pretty tense. Um, I think both players raised their level a bit. Novak wins it, uh, wins that third set in a tie break. 
Um, there was the little celebration thing at the end. I think it was a lot to do about nothing. You know, it's interesting, Steve, if you remember Ben's dad, Brian on tour, he was extremely mild mannered, extremely mild mannered. And you see Ben now come out on court and he's, he's all rah, rah. And that's great. That's part of what he is. He's had the college tennis for two years at Florida. I get it. Um, there, there comes a point maybe, and it's a balance, right? Cause that's who it is. And you don't want to take that part away with them, but if it's respect for other po- opponents, maybe, especially if you're playing a, uh, another compatriot like you did with Francis or Tommy again one of the greats in Novak maybe you dial it back a tad um again it's a it's a careful balancing act I don't know your thoughts on it again I think the the whole thing was a lot to do about nothing by all accounts off the court he's friends with everybody and he very very likable young man that is in Ben Shelton no he isn't both Djokovic and and Ben Shelton downplayed it in the press conference too but it, it obviously it's unusual Djokovic usually has really warm greetings, win or lose with his opponents after these matches. That was not one of them. But again, they put out the fire in a hurry in their press conferences and, 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 and that was the end of it. But as far as the tennis, Djokovic was really in a great position. I mean, he, he raced to a 5-2 first set lead and almost had love 40 to get a second break and close out the set there. Unable to do it there and then had a break point against him the next game, but served it out. And then from there, he pretty he dominated the second set, 6-2, and goes up 4-2 in the third. Almost had a second break in the middle of the third set, which he couldn't get. And then you could see he got tight at 4-3. And once he got tight, that's when I thought Ben started raising his game. After Novak played a, a bad game by his standards in 4-3, then Ben started to play really well. But Novak still breaks it. He saves a set point at 4-5 with a yeah. service winner, 124 miles an hour. And then breaks so he's serving for the match now and and they got pretty nervous again but what was going on in that phase that, that impressed me from Ben's end of the court well Novak went off a bit prior to the tie break and then in in the middle of the tie break is that Ben really steadied down off his back suddenly it was like he could not miss a backhand he, and unlike the forehand that he likes to he likes to just knock the cover off the ball break the ball in half the backhand is much more about depth and consistency so Novak was going cross-court as he had most of the match off his forehand to the Shelton backhand. But suddenly, Shelton was getting great depth and hitting him deep into Novak's forehand corner and coaxing a few errors. That was impressive to me, how well he stayed in those rallies in the latter stages of the second set. And even coming back in the breaker, he's already saved a match point on Novak's serve when Novak served for the match at 6-5. And then it's 5-1 in the breaker, and Shelton wins the next three points. And then Djokovic put out the fire at the end and made a nice backhand volley for 6-4 and coaxed an error up Ben's forehand, so he wins at 7-4. But it was, it was, he got very inspired, and the crowd did too. It got almost as noisy as it did during Coco's match when Ben was making his comeback in the third set. So he did salvage something by making the third set tighter because it could easily have been 3-2-4, and 3-2-3, and you know, something even more decisive. And he managed to extend that third set, even though he didn't win it. And from Novak's end, it was okay. It didn't make much difference because he, he, he certainly didn't want to play another set. But the fact that it was a 7-6 set and not a 6-4, I don't think that had that, that bothered him in the least. Uh, and, yeah, Ben, he likes the big stage, right? What do you make? The quarters in Australia. Then yeah. the, the rest of the year, what he did not – he didn't win – did he not win back-to-back matches? There was a spell there where he was yeah, not winning back-to-back matches. Right. And then U.S. Open, he gets to the semi. So he he clearly likes the big stage, Steve. Yeah, he won back-to-back matches, I believe, in one challenger. He played one challenger. But otherwise, 
counting the challenger, I was looking at it and his record was along the lines of nine wins and 19 losses. Yeah. So he really had a very tough time after Australia. And which, yet, which I think is normal, which I think is normal. Oh, yeah. He shot up it is. so quick. It's true, but he, he would have liked to have won a few more matches. And But it just shows you the self-belief because to come out of that kind of a phase and not having done anything all summer and then lift your game and beat your two fellow Americans who were both so accomplished, Tommy Paul, the semifinals at the Australian this year, beating Ben in the quarters, and, and Francis Diapo, three great opens in a row, most notably a year ago when he got to the semis and lost in five to Alcaraz, to knock them both off the way he did in four set triumphs in the this is gonna. This is gonna be fascinating to see now what he does from here to the end of the year. I don't see another slump like the one we had post Australia. I think he's gonna do a lot better now. I'm not saying he's in the quarters and semis every week, but I think you're gonna see him win a lot of matches between now and November. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then the other semi uh, is Medvedev and Carlos, and we're all thinking, okay, rematch of Cincy, maybe, right? Carlos and Novak, let's get it done. We were all talking about that pre-tournament. Now we're one match away. Medvedev interrupts that. He wins it in four sets. The second set, 6-1, Steve. I'm gonna let it, I'm gonna let you run with this, but 6-1. When have you seen a set with Carlos? A 6-1 set. Carlos loses very, very, very rare. Very rare. It's rare. And it happened because he said later that he in effect he felt like he had brain cramps. He thought he did he was really annoyed with himself over the tiebreak. He didn't understand what happened from three all in the tiebreak. Medvedev had just double faulted after being the mini break up. So it's three all and Carlos is in with a shot. He doesn't win another point. Made a few mistakes. He didn't play the rest of that breaker terribly well. Medvedev was quite good. But you still think that Carlos starts the second and say, okay, I lost the tiebreak. It's not the end of the world. I'm down a set. It's best of five. I'm going to jump on this right now. I'm going to go after an early service break and <clears throat> change the color of this match. He didn't do anything of the kind. He got broken a couple of times in the second set. It, it, Medvedev just blitzed him in the second. So it was almost, I mean, Carlos did not tank by any means, but it, it, because he was so distracted, he, he just made it, it was a very easy set for Medvedev. But then typical of Carlos, he makes his move early in the third. He gets the break for 3-1. He's playing to the crowd in the nicest possible way to get them to inspire him, which is exactly what they did. And suddenly it's two sets to one based on that one break. Medvedev managed to keep it as only one break, which was important from his end not, that he did not collapse in the third. And then early in the fourth and one all, you had three break points for Carlos on Medvedev served. That could have made a big difference if he converts there. Medvedev played a great game to get out of it. And then it all comes down to the sixth game. Carlos serving a two, three, seven deuces. And finally, finally, Medvedev breaks through at the end of that game. Carlos trying at that stage trying to serve in volley almost every point, almost too much. Because unlike Novak in the final, he I don't think he was locating his serve as well. And, and Daniel was getting a good look at some of those returns and making Carlos play tough volleys. So, but finally Medvedev breaks. And then we had the excitement of the last game because Medvedev easily went to 5-2. But at 5-3, when he served for it, it was a crazy game. He was 15-40 down. He gets from there to match point, double faults, double faults again. Then he's saving break points. He finally, he get. He was very lucky on one break point, extremely lucky. The return was deep and he could barely get it back and it kind of hit the sideline. He could easily have missed that shot. And then Carlos, not expecting the ball to come back so short and having too much time to think, hits a back end down the line long. So that was a real gift for Daniel. And then he finally closed it out. So he did get tight in the last game, but I have to say, David, 
it's the best match he's played all year long, in my view, and certainly the best he's played at a major. And it was such an important win because he'd lost twice to Carlos, as you know, at Indian Wells final, Wimbledon semis were routes. Bad, he, yeah, bad losses. Bad losses, and he, he just looked like he had no clue how to play him. This time, he put up the wall, the famous Medvedev wall, and stopped missing again. But also, not only that, the forehand had real penetration. He was hitting it hard and deep and not missing it much. The serve was terrific. He only got broken that one time in the early in, in, in the third, never again. And uh, that's impressive, too, given how many times he got broken against Carlos in the previous two matches. So I thought it was a really, even though he doesn't win the tournament, it was a very important match for him and a very important win. And then Carlos took it in the right light again and criticized himself in the right way for constructive criticism. I thought I was, I need to be more mature. I need to learn from this. No excuses, but great attitude as there, as he always seems to display. But I, I enjoyed that. The atmosphere for that match was terrific too, because Medvedev was a bit perturbed by the crowd being so pro Carlos, but he ended up using it to his advantage and spurring himself on. And he got the win despite that. And it was a, it was aside from Sinner against <clears throat> Sinner against uh, Sasha, and Sasha beat Sinner in five. I would say that the Carlos Medvedev match was the next best match in the tournament. And I mean, it was nice, right? You have you have Medvedev as the twenty twenty one U.S. Open champ. You have Carlos the twenty twenty two U.S. Open champ. The right. winner's going to face Novak. Right. We're just going to face Novak, right? So the final is Medvedev Novak. Um, the the scoreline in the final was six three seven six six three. I felt it was much closer than what if you just saw the scoreline. It just seems pretty routine. It was not routine. I mean, shoot the the second set. It was one hour and forty four minutes. I mean, some of these points were just. I I can't and TV doesn't do it justice, and I, I just can't believe how physical the sport has become how big these guys, how strong these guys are, how, 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 you know, strong they, they hit the ball, how fast and athletic they all are. It's a sport now that is extremely physical. And that's why you're seeing, again, we've talked about it previously. Like when you have these weak um, back-to-back events, you have someone maybe winning it and then losing early in the next week. It's just because of the recovery time is just not enough time. At least in the slams, you generally have a day off, right? It's a little bit different than just playing consecutive tournaments back to back to back to back. Um, the sport is crazy physical. I mean, an hour and 44 minutes, these guys are giving it everything they got for one set. Um, but then again, Novak comes out on top, 24th major. Um, I'll let you talk about the match. Yeah, well, you described it well. I would say this. The reason it was so close, and you're obviously right, it's not the first of the third sets, which are pretty clear cut for, for Novak. You know, he got an early break in the first. He broke at love in the second game of the match. And that was the only break of the first set. He was never really, never break point down on his own serve. So it was a fairly comfortable opening set. But the second set was so critical for both. Novak didn't want to find himself at one set all after a set that lasts an hour and 44 minutes, thinking about, I may be out here for three more hours. I might be out two and a half more hours. And it's the last thing he wants to do at that stage. And then Medvedev is desperate to win it because he knows I can't afford to go two sets down. So they both realized what would fully, excuse me, fully realizing precisely what was at stake. And they were just throwing their heart and soul into that set. Now that just to add to your comment about the physical nature of the game, I don't think there's any more physical matchup in tennis than Djokovic versus Medvedev. Neither one. Carlos Novak. 
Not even Carlos Novak. No, because Carlos, the reason I say that is Carlos, obviously, they're, they're going to have some incredibly taxing rallies. But Carlos has that that inclination, which is Carlos. is He's adventuresome and he likes to go for it. And there are times he's going to go for winners or times he's going to rip returns and either make them or miss them. So the point's over quickly. That really that doesn't happen with Daniel. And so he works Novak physically harder than anybody else and vice versa, which is why I love their matches. They played a match at the year-end championships last year, David, in turn, and it was technically meaningless. Novak had qualified. It was at the ATP finals and it's round robin. He's already qualified. He's won two matches in straight sets, so he doesn't really even need to win a set in this match. He can just sort of rest up for the weekend. And sometimes players have done that in their own interest because the semifinals and final matter a lot more than than, uh, the last round robin match. They played that match like a final. And, and Novak won the first, lost a hard-fought second, and then Medvedev broke in the third and served for the match. Djokovic breaks right back and wins it in a final set tiebreak. And he was asked later, why did you treat that so seriously? What, what was motivating? He says, he's, mo- he's one of my most important rivals. And I love that. I love that, that the respect that he was showing for Medvedev to say, no, I needed to beat him. He, it, that matters to me. He, I, I take him very, very seriously. So... I just think I think they're really into, they may not be as exciting as the Alcaraz Djokovic matches because there's more contrast when Carlos plays Nova, but they're really first class tennis matches. And, and we saw it in the second set. What I'm saying is I think the second set was one of the great sets we've seen in a U.S. Open final. Obviously not the entire match, but that second set of an hour and 44 was just in. And what's what people forget, David, just a quick few details. Early on, in those first, you, you go up to like three all. Novak is not even losing a point on his serve. Daniel's at he Daniel's at deuce at least one deuce every service game. Then Daniel goes down break point in the seventh game. Novak saves it. Uh, I mean, uh, Daniel saves it. So Novak is serving a three four now for the first time. He starts to feel the strain physically and mentally, and he's now fighting for his serve to hold his serve, which hadn't been the case at all until that point in the match. And then eventually at 5-6, he saves that set point, which was critical. That was on the serve volley, where he, he this was not the typical deuce court serve and volley, which he did most a lot of the match, because he won 20 of 22 serve and volley points, which is really impressive. So, But on this one, on the set point, down the tee in the ad court, back in angled first volley cross court, Daniel seemed to have a lot of space to go down the line, but Novak stayed home. And Daniel went cross court and Novak gets the back end volley into the open court. John McEnroe, I didn't hear it at the time because I was out there watching it live at the courtside. But later, McEnroe seemed pretty critical of, of, of Medvedev and many people were. And it's valid. But on the other hand, you got to make a quick choice. And who's to say well, it's second that, choice? Yeah. And who's to say that Djokovic doesn't then quickly read the down the line and get over there? We'll never we're never going to know that. Chances are maybe Daniel can make it. But as you know, the down the line passing shot is is. It's tough for you going over the higher part of the net. Novak's was no sitter volley. He angled it cross court. It was fairly low, and it was so. It wouldn't have that been that easy to execute, which is what Daniel seemed to be saying afterwards. Regardless of whether Medvedev made a bad choice, Djokovic came at him, and it paid off, and he wins the point on on the on the second volley, and then we go into the tiebreak. And that tiebreak to me was just spellbinding. They wow. played a cu- couple of points in that breaker that were just. Absolutely ridiculous. And Medvedev was up 3-1. Novak, as he so often does, makes a quick move and gets a mini break back to make it 2-3, goes up 4-3, and then misses a 
down the line forehand, a shot he can make a lot, but it wasn't an easy one. He was going for the winner and he missed it long. And then, then at four all, they played this crazy point where Djokovic hit a short angle backhand drop cross court. And Daniel, you know, it looked like it was going to be very hard to get back in anyway. Daniel redrops down the line, somehow right. gets it up the high part of the net and, and forces Novak into a forehand error down the line. And so now instead of it being five four, Novak serving, he's four five, so much pressure on him. And he just peppered away at Daniel's back end. And each cross court back, and there were six of them, each one gets has a little more bite and a little more angle. So finally, the last one. He, may, he forces him into an error. And then he does another serve volley to deuce court. The return is out down the line from Daniel. So it's 6-5 Novak. And finally, um, Medvedev cracked, David, on, on that last point. The 6-5, serving at 5-6, he made a back-end error that he wouldn't normally make down the line. And, and that was so crucial. And I, I was sitting with a lot of the Serbian journalists, and they, they just they couldn't get over that set. They couldn't get over that tiebreaker. All the journalists. And we all knew it was going to be almost impossible. And Daniel doesn't quit. And he fought in the third. But that was much too tall a task to be down two sets and thinking about maybe five hours to beat him in five sets, knowing that Novak is still going to give you nothing. So it was such a critical set for him to pull out. And so enjoyable to watch on both sides of the net. By far, Medvedev's best set of the match. And very impressive in the way the stick to of Djokovic to find a way to win that set. I knew heading into that match, it was going to be a tall order for Daniil just because, one, you have the motivation of another slam that Novak is, you know, he wants to break every record there is. But in addition, I mean, Novak's facing the guy that stopped him from winning a calendar slam. And you're just right, like, right. You, you, like Novak needs any more motivation than what he normally already has, right? So you just add that to the equation and you're just like, it's going to be tough sledding for Daniil. But as you said, I mean, some of those points were ridiculous. And that second set was 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 crazy. And credit to both those guys. And, and, and credit, I mean, here. And sorry, and credit to Daniel in the third, too, because Novak got this break for 3-1. He, he finally breaks him for the second time in the match. It's the first time he broke him since Medvedev's opening service game of the match. And then you think it's over. But but he played kind of a sloppy game. He played his only bad service game. One double fall and a couple of errors. And he's, he's broken at 15. And suddenly it's now only 3-2. But in the next game, Medvedev was at 30-love. And Djokovic made an incredibly deep forehand return off a wide serve and got an error out of Daniel and came back and, and played a couple of great shots from there. There was a double from Daniel. Then there was a back end down the line winner from Novak. And the next thing you know, he's broken for 4-2. And then he really put the clamps down from there and and but even so even then nice little flick another another demonstration of daniel's professionalism was two five in the third love 30 you think he might throw it in there no four points in a row gets the hold and makes novak serve it out so i you have you have to admire that his his professionalism too but you you put your finger on it he's lost him two years ago in that final it's not personal but he but even daniel kept saying novak is a different person when he's, you know, when, when he's coming off a loss. And so he knew because he also had seen what that Novak came back at Carlos to beat him in Cincinnati. And he alluded to that. So Daniel was absolutely aware of what was going to be asked of him that day. Uh, so, but look, you have to feel a little bit of sympathy for Medvedev, David, because he's been in five finals at the majors. He did win that one over Novak, which is very special in 21, two five set losses to Rafa, one in the, 2019 U.S. Open final, the other in last year, 2022 in Australia, when he had two sets to love. And then 
two to Novak now, Australia in 2021 and now here. So, I mean, that, he, that's what everyone faces. The look at Casper Ruud, right? He's faced true. He's two in finals. He's played Rafa and Novak. I mean, yeah. all these guys that are, are that next generation, they can't get, they can't get a slam because they go into, you know, one of the, the three all-time greats, right? It's true. But Dan, in Daniel's case to have lost two five setters to Rafa, one where he came from two sets down in the 19 U.S. Open final and got it all the way into a fifth and couldn't do it. And then the other where he led two sets to 11 Australia. So those two are have to be heartbreaking. Those hurt. Those hurt. <laughs> those hurt. And then with Novak, the two that he lost in Australia was 5-2-2. Two, and two, And now this one was straight as well. They, they probably don't sting as much as the two to Rafa. But well, Daniel he a, said, what are you still doing here, Novak? What are you still yeah, doing here? Yeah. Well, he was also very nice about talking about I've won 20 titles and you all together all and, and you've won 24 slams, you know, so he's a good he's a good loser that way. He, you know, his best side comes out actually win or lose. And when he left when he left the uh, press room after the interview, it was kind of similar to two years ago when he won it. He gets up from his seat. He's walking out of the room. And he turns to all of us in the press corps and says, OK, guys, uh, I'll, I'll see you somewhere. You know, yeah. it's very human. And it wasn't said like sarcastic. He's, got, he's definitely got a personality. He definitely yeah. got a personality. Yeah. Well, this was this this was great. And again, there's more tennis to, to be had. And we're going to have our year end segment and all that. But uh, it, it to me, it, it starts like you have Australia. Then you got like this lull until you get not lull with lack of tennis. Lull till you get to the next slam. Right, because you got hardcore events with this with the sunshine double, right, ending it, and then you go to the clay court. You get the long clay court lead in season. You get the French. Then you got Wimbledon right after that, and then right into the summer hardcore swing in the U.S. Open, culminating in what just happened yesterday. We're recording this Monday night. Should have said that at the outset, but um, this was this was fun. And I think looking ahead, Steve, I'll I'll end with this, and I'll ask you for your opinion. I think the Americans, the momentum that they had going in this summer and now in the U.S. Open, both on the men and women's side. With On the women's side, obviously, you have Coco and you got resurgent Madison Keys. We talked about Jesse Pagula. On the guy, on the men's side, you have the TFO, Paul, Fritz, Shelton. I mean, they're, they're, they're still on an incline, Steve. I expect, I expect them to still do this well in other slams in 2024, if not better. Yeah, I think so. I think it's entirely possible. I, I think Taylor, obviously Taylor has a real problem. He's never beaten Novak and the matches that they have. He's got to get out of that side of the draw with Novak. Yeah, he does. But similar. <laughs> As does lost, everybody. <laughs> yeah, he lost again in straight here. And he talked about the difficulty of winning second serve points against him. And that, that, that then that kind of gets in his head and he tries too hard to make the first serve and his percentage goes down. But no, he's doing he's doing well. And Tommy Paul, despite the loss to Shelton, I still think he's made strides this year. But to me, the biggest biggest upside lo- uh, over the long term is probably Shelton. I mean, I, the biggest I I don't know if we're necessarily going to see it all happen in the next year. But right. at his age, I mean, think of where he might be at 23, 24 compared to now. So he's really there's exciting potential for him. And then the others are going to, they're going to stay in the forefront of the game. I mean, how much more progress they can make, I don't know. I don't think we're looking at top five in the world candidates, but Tommy could make it into the top 10. Taylor can stay in the top 10. Tiapo could maybe squeeze back into the bottom of the top 10 himself because this was no disaster. He just did, you know, he didn't protect his semifinal points. He loses in the quarters. That's, there's no disgrace. Well, we'll see how it all goes going forward. And I hope all, all, all of them continue to make uh, good forward progress. 
This was fun, Steve. We're going to do, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out when we do our next episode, but, uh, we'll, we'll figure some fun things to talk about. Obviously the fall season is, is, is interesting. Uh, you sometimes get some strange results just because some players don't play anymore, but, but we'll, we'll be back soon, sooner rather than later. I want to thank you for your time, Steve. And, and this was a, a overall, a, a great U S open, both on the men's and, and, and women's side. Well, I think it was. I think the fans really enjoyed it. I have to say a last comment. I thank, Thankfully, those last bunch of days, it was all indoors because the, the weather required that it be indoors. There was rain uh, coming up or during those matches. So that meant that for those semis and finals, particularly for the men semis and finals, they could play in, in more comfort. Still, I, I, I think it was to the fans' benefit, too, because they didn't have to reach for the towel so often. I try to imagine what a, what a Medvedev Djokovic second set would have looked like under on, 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 in outdoor conditions. It, it's scary to even think of it. Yeah. I mean, Medvedev, Medvedev was Rublev. He said someone's going to die out here. I mean, he did. He did. So. And and imagine what he would have been saying after a set of that length. So it was it was really kind of a stroke of good fortune. We don't usually get much bad weather out there, but toward the end it got shaky, and that then meant we had to use the roof and. Just sitting in there was so much more comfortable too. That I, I the, whatever virus was going on in that first week, it didn't really bleed into the second week because that could have gotten real u- ugly. You don't want you don't want the virus at all. Period. And then obviously, as you get into the most important rounds of major, you don't want you don't want a virus being a determining factor of who who advances and who doesn't. No, no. But I, I I'm I, I'm just saying when it came to that roof, it it saved things in a lot of ways. And 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 you know the atmosphere. The lighting is excellent under the roof. Real, I, I think it's the best lighting I've seen. And I've seen Australian Wimbledon too, which is quite good. I would say this is the best of the three for lighting. And and it's extremely comfortable in there just sitting. You feel that air conditioning. You you as a fan certainly feel more comfortable in there. And that's so all around, that was a really good development. It was fortunate for everybody that it happened. Well, this was great. A great conclusion to the to the slam season 2023. Congrats. Coco Goff, congrats, Novak Djokovic, Steve, thank you again. This was fun. Thank you, David.